0: Have you ever had somebody show up at your house unexpectedly? Anybody? This happens to me often because I have a really hard time taking care of my calendar and my schedule. So uh, sometimes <laughs> it's become less, less frequent, thankfully, by the grace of God. But it still happens where all of a sudden uh, we have like a sort of a shade, a kind of a shade that lets down a little bit of light over the window that's to our door. So we always leave that down so no one can just come up to our door and peer in, which is a good thing for me because I'm usually frantically running around looking for Corey, going, Corey, why is this person here? And she then tells me uh, because they're supposed to come over right now. Remember, I told you 10 times. So the, sh- <laughs> the shade is down. Da- that doesn't happen to anybody else? Great. I am alone again. So the shade's down and and, and so I can kind of see looking in, like, oh my gosh, why, why are they here? Great. Uh, and so a- after I figure it out, Uh, then I I naturally know what the next transition point is. They're coming over for dinner. They're coming to pick something up. They're coming to whatever it may be. Um, You never find somebody, if they were to show up at your house, just say, uh, I'm just uh, here. So, you you know, they they ring the doorbell and you open the door, and you're like, hey, so I totally forgot. Why are you coming over again? Oh, no, I'm just here. Awesome. I need to call the police. Um. (laughs) You know, it's just awkward, right? This is not a normal occurrence in our life. We have to ask ourselves the natural question of where and why are you here, right? It'd be like getting into your car and the same person standing outside your car. Hey, dude, what's up? You know, like the close talkers, right? But they're not there to like actually even tell you anything. They're just like close standards. Like, hey, what's going on? You want to chat? No, man, just here. Right, And, and this, is, this is the picture that we have consistently of, of Jesus, of a God who's just here. We have to ask the question, like, why is he with us? And, and whenever we ask that question, and we've asked that question many, many times here in church and explored the God who is as close as our breath and the God who lives with us and dwells with us, um, it always goes to the next level. The natural thought is a lot of, like, when a lot of people can at least take the idea that God is, like, with us, Uh, And God is sort of omnipresent. But the Bible declares like emphatically that God is not just with us, but God is for us. He's here to make sure that we are cared for. He, he, He backs us up. He steps into place when we need him the most. He's a provider and a protector. And I could go on. Romans 8, 31 to 32 makes this like crystal clear. Uh, And I actually want to read this out of the King James, which I never do, but it's something about that. I'm feeling King James-ish today. What shall we say about such wonderful things as these? If God is for us, who can ever be against us? Since he did not spare even his own son, but gave him up for us all, won't he also give us everything else? God is for us. God is so for us that he sacrificed his very self for us. God is the close talker who also wants to give you a hug and is looking out for you, for lack of a better example. What's really interesting is that if we trace the story of Scripture over and over and over, there's this term, uh, long-suffering. Have you ever heard this phrase, long-suffering? Right? A lot of times this is attributed to like parents, specifically mothers for some reason, like, like who have like really difficult like teenagers or difficult um, you know twenty somethings or the thirty something guy who's still living in their basement playing video games like uh, that was a rebuke um, the, the the and just like oh my gosh will you ever just move on will you ever grow up will you ever get your life together right this is long sufferings often attached to. to to parents, and this is actually the language is literally this in the Hebrew, when we see God interact with the first people with the Israelites over and over and over you see God in places where the Israelites um, are kicking back, are obnoxious are disobeying, are making idols, the God who stays with them, and not only the God who stays with them, but the God who loves them so much that sometimes he actually punishes them he actually does something to help them along, right? Good love doesn't just stand at a distance, it engages. But it continues to meet them where they're at over and over and over. I want to read um, bits of a really long psalm. I'm going to read it in a, in a paraphrase uh, that might be helpful to grab at. But this is Psalm 106. What's awesome about Psalm 106 is it's basically like a song. Like a really long song, like Bye Bye Miss American Pie. That's not what that song called, is it? But you know what I'm talking? Just like tells us, any John Mellencamp song. Right? You ever notice all John Mellencamp songs just tell a story of like the same two characters? That's it. Anyone even know who John Mellencamp is that I just date myself back? Oh, all right. Sweet. He's not very good, right? <laughs> John Mellencamp. So he tells this whole story. That's kind of what this psalm is like. Just tells this long story of this, of this habit that happens over and over and over with these first people. So the first people, meant to be a blessing to the world, God just pours grace out on them, gives them the law, delivers them, shows them this is the way to live, and they forget, and they're disobedient, and here's how the song goes. Psalm 106, if you want to follow along. Hallelujah, thank you God, and why? Because he's good, because his love lasts, but who on earth can do it? Declaim God's mighty acts, broadcast all his praises. You're only Uh, You are one happy person when you do what's right. You are one happy person when you form the habit of justice. Remember me, God, when you enjoy your people. Include me when you save them. I want to see your chosen succeed. Celebrate with your celebrating nation. Join the hallelujahs of your pride and joy. So he's saying, like, God, you are the God. You're the greatest. No other name than you. And then he says this in verse 6. We've sinned a lot. (laughs) Don't you ever just want, this is just like my simple prayers so often. is like, help. I have sinned a lot today. Help. Both we and our parents, we have fallen short. We have hurt so many. After our parents left Egypt, they took your wonders for granted. So here's story one. For, uh, forgot your great and wonderful love. They were barely beyond the Red Sea when they defiled the high God. They, like, God had just delivered them. The very high place he saved them. The place he revealed his amazing power. He rebuked the Red Sea so that it dried up on the spot. He paraded them through. No one so much as got wet feet. He saved them from a life of oppression. He pried them loose from the grip of the enemy. Then the waters flowed back on their oppressors. There wasn't a single survivor. Then they believed his words were true and broke out in songs of praise. But it wasn't long before they forgot the whole thing. Wouldn't wait to be told what to do. They only cared about pleasing themselves in the desert. They provoked God with their incessant demands. He gave them exactly what they asked for, but along with it, they got an empty heart. One day in camp, some grew jealous of Moses, also of Aaron, the holy priest of God. The ground opened up and swallowed, and it goes in and tells this whole story. Like they cast cast in metal a bull calf at Horeb and worshipped the statue they made. They traded the glory for a cheap price of sculpture. Uh, they forgot God, their own Savior, who turns things around in Egypt, who created a world of wonders in the land of Ham. So he again reminds them, "You guys have forgotten again and again and again." They linked up with Baal, so this is like a god um, uh, and another idol uh, attending funeral banquets and eating idol food. This made God angry. A plague um, went through their ranks, and God rescues them again. Uh, They defile God again. They move away from the way of God. They end up sacrificing, uh, like joining with people who sacrifice children. Just all of this brokenness over and over and over. I would encourage you to continue to read the story of Psalm 106. It just paints this picture of a God who is relentlessly pursuing them, a God who is for them. Psalm 56.9 literally just says it again like Romans explicitly. When I cry out to you, then my enemies will turn back. This I know because God is for me. If God is for me, who can be against me? If God is for us, who can ever be against us? It is impossible for any like, human speech at all to express the full meaning of that phrase, I am convinced. Have you ever had somebody, literally think for a second, have you ever had someone in your life who is just for you? Like that you actually know you have a a a a way in which a bracket to understand that phrase. Like if I asked you, like, have you ever had somebody who's just so for you? Yeah. I was talking to a friend of mine about a coach that he had, just it wasn't that the coach like overlooked the fact that there was a lot of like brokenness in his life, and that he was kind of a jerk most days, but he tells me a story. It's just like it was amazing. It's like this guy just rooted for me. It was some like bizarre mix of being able to be sober-minded and like critical of things that were broken, but I still felt so cared for and so not just loved, but I felt like he wanted the best for me. God was for these first people when they did the worst possible things. God We read in scripture, was for us before the worlds were made. God was for us, or he would not have given us, given Jesus to die on the cross for us. He was for us when we were ruined because of our sin. He loves us, notwithstanding all of it. He was for us when we were rebels against him in our hearts. He was for us. Or he would not have brought us humbly to seek his face. Charles Spurgeon, a writer who's actually, if any familiar with Charles Spurgeon, he's kind of known for his like fire, right? He's pretty brutal. And he has this unbelievably beautiful passage. You have to be reminded sometimes when you're around Christians who don't seem like the most pleasant people in the world, they seem to always have an axe to grind. These are our brothers and sisters. You read most of Spurgeon stuff, and I kind of get a sense of like, yikes, dude, deep breaths, deep breaths. And yet he puts out some of the most unbelievably poetic, powerful language, because we are still mining from the same story. He says this, he has been for us in many struggles. We have been summoned to encounter hosts of dangers, and we have been assailed by temptations from within and without how could we have remained unharmed to this hour if, we had, if he had not been for us? Like, How could we have even remained if he had not been for us? He is for us with all the infinity of his being, with all the omnipotence of his love, with all the infallibility of his wisdom arrayed in all of his divine attributes. He is for us. Can I get an amen? Eternally and immutably for us. For us, this is so Spurgeon, for where yon blue sky shall be rolled up like a worn out vesture for us throughout eternity. And the church said, amen. This is something that if you've grown up in church, it goes like this. Like immediately, immediately the temptation, I will just say. I know how it's always been for me in sitting there and listening to sermons. listening to the word is to go, ah, great. Yep, God's for us. Sweet. This should change the fact that you're a lousy gossip. If this doesn't change the fact that you constantly have negative and critical thoughts towards everything, that you, when you actually try to ask the question, man, is there anybody who is actually for me? Then turn around and ask the question, am I for anyone? And the best part of the question is, do they know it? do they actually know? Are there people in my life right now that they know that I am for them? Is your mind being set on that which is beautiful and true and all the other things we've talked about and then today is what is commendable? Like what is admirable? Is your mind set on the things that deserve commendation? Because as Christians, I know not everyone here is a Christian, but if you're a Christian, this is your story. We have been saved by the grace of God. We have a God who is for us, who is standing awkwardly at the door, not just with us, but ready to protect, to care, to love our identity, grounded in this God who is for us. How could we not then? I think about loving your enemies. I love talking about this because it's one of the most challenging things, and we as Christians should be marked by peace peacemaking. So one interesting thing is Jesus, like the God of the universe sends Jesus and dies for us. Like the ultimate sacrifice. Sacrificing your life for the sake of humanity. Unbelievable. Like God backs off and goes, look, you don't have to die. Like, you don't need to do that. I've already done that. You just need to love your enemies. Like, God actually just sets this up in such a way that, well, I've already done all the heavy lifting. You just need to begin to see them the way I see them. I've shown you what this looks like because you should have experienced it. Because I know that some of you, and, and, and this is okay obviously, like have actually not experienced the love of God. You've not experienced or do not understand this reality that you have a God who is for us. Or maybe you understand it and you believe it, but you have not uh, continued to mind the depths of that reality. Because if that is true, then you know, this gorgeous passage we read from Spurgeon about the God who is for us should shift so dramatically the way in which we see our neighbor and, and the way in which we think. He has been for us in many struggles. We have been summoned to encounter hosts of danger, and we have been assailed by temptations from without and within. How could we have remained unharmed to this hour if God had not been for us? He is for us with all the infinity of his being, with all the omnipotence of his love, and with all the infallibility of his wisdom. He is for us. Oh, believer, this is how he ends. How happy are you with the king of kings on your side? How safe with such a protector? How sure your cause pleaded by such an advocate. If God is for you, who can be against you? My dad used to ask people, how good does God need to be? to you before you are happy. How good does God need to be to you before you are happy? And it's not a condemning statement. It's a wake-up call. We have a good God and we have a good Savior and our lives are good. Even in the wake of our brokenness, we have, like, the, the, the truth is, is that we have security in heaven. We have a life that is offered to us that even in the midst of struggle, we have a God who is good. We have so much to be grateful for and some of us go so far as to think that God gets a kick out of our suffering or that God is somehow standing at a distance or that God does not want to see us redeemed or reclaimed. Even when it comes to like eternal things, right, like hell, right, where we get all these great pictures of a God who says, like, I desire everyone to come to know me. That's what he says in 1 Timothy, I actually desire everyone to come to know me. First Peter, he's long-suffering, patient, wanting everyone to come to know the salvation of God. God has plans for us, plans to prosper us. We read about in the book of Jeremiah, like the most overquoted verse in the entire universe. Right? We get this picture of this one prophet, a God who just desires and who is for and cares for. In other words, don't tell me I'm here to do you bad. Don't tell me I'm here just to judge you. Don't tell me I'm here because I'm mad at you. God is saying, I know your thoughts, and I think about you, and they're for good, not for evil. I know your future, and it's full of hope. I I have always struggled with saying words like this up front because I always worry that this sort of filter and interpretation from out there is either it's too good to be true, that's really cute and has no bearing on my life, or you're not taking seriously God's wrath enough. I would humbly submit to you, um, it, none of those things are a helpful filter for the reality of what can happen the more and more we mill and ground ourselves in this reality on a day-to-day basis. So to close, when we end at our, when we, I'm going to land now at our, at our verse. I'm sorry I don't have any slides this morning. But the, the scripture we've been going to is Philippians 4.8, and we're at the whatever is commendable. We've been talking for the last six weeks about the things that we put into our mind and why it's so unbelievably important. What we put in our mind matters because it comes out. D.A. Carson says this, one of the sovereign remedies against sin is to spend much time, thoughtful time, meditative time in the scriptures, for it is impossible to get rid of the trash in our minds without replacing it with an entirely different way of thinking. We talked about this every week. You can't just get rid of something and not replace it with something else. Paul is saying, I want you to set your minds on beautiful, good, true, lovely, admirable, powerful things. As followers of Jesus, we should be filled with the way of life. So this word that we're at today, commendable. Uh, One way to put it would be admirable, and another way would be uh, good repute, of good repute. Uh, And it's the word uh, euphema, eu. Uh, which means good, so it's E-U-P-H-E-M-A. The E-U is good, and the FEMA is report or news. Uh, it's where we get the word euphemism, which actually works really well in helping get at this. Anyone know what a euphemism is, right? Uh, I'll give you the definition. A mild or indirect word or expression substituted for one considered to be too harsh or blunt when referring to something unpleasant. I hate euphemisms. All right, some of you who are more like, like cut to the chase, stop trying to pretty it up. You hate euphemisms. It's the uh, downsizing. Yeah, the company's downsizing. Right? That is a euphemism for what? Gutting it. Right? (laughs) Oh, we're just downsizing. Yeah, you're firing, like, real people. Right? That's, like, the spectrum of how people deal with it. Some are just, like, the brash. No, just cut to the chase. And others, no, no, it's, we're experiencing, you know, a little, a bit of a lag in, in income. So we're going to... You know, just be, be shortening or small company a little bit. This is uh, uh, how we so often, or some of us, filter. And, and it, a, a good definition for, for this euphema word and why euphemism comes from that is because there's actually something well, there's something infuriating, right, about the person who constantly talks like that, who just always seems to pad language. But for the person that's healthy, who uses euphemisms, who uses the downsizing instead of cuts, So often, it's actually bathed out of, I actually would like to focus on the positive here. I'd actually like to focus on the commendable because it does no good to focus on that which isn't. A good definition would be this, of this word euphema, of commendable. So Paul, whatever's commendable, think about such things. So we should all do this. Thinking that searches for the good rather than the bad in another person or another thing. Euphema, what is commendable? Thinking that searches for the good rather than the bad in another person or another thing. It is whatever is of good saying or good fame or that is spoken well of, think about these things. Maybe it's helpful to think of the opposite. Uh, Like rumors, like I was mentioning before, gossip. uh, Things that are like a pessimistic worldview. Like the things that are constantly broken. You want to constantly critique uh, some folks, like uh, in hearing the idea, always look at it through the worst possible light. They look at that person through the worst possible light. We do this with celebrities all the time. We immediately filter them through the lens of what's wrong. Right? We critique when we don't like what's going on, when someone annoys us just for a moment. Last night, I got home from an eight-and-a-half-hour trip from Toronto. I pull up. I don't know why we decided to drive all that in one day. My wonderful and beautiful frugal wife. I love you, honey. So we (laughs) we drive in. I am so beat. I've been driving for, yeah, eight and a half hours. We pull up and we notice there's a lot of traffic in the parking lot, in the the roads around the house. And uh, I get out and the music is blaring. I've talked about our neighbors before. I'm going to have to stop talking about them if they start coming to church. So we share a fence, and they're right behind us, and the music is just Dear Lord. And there's conservatively 75 people in their backyard, a pretty small backyard, everywhere. Like, there's folks that are drunk. There's some folks that's yelling over there in the corner. And, of course, they gave permission for the neighbors that are two houses down who are a little bit better. They gave them, like, free reign to throw a party as well. And it's just this awful moment where every bone in my body is not just critical. I have a right to be critical, right? It's midnight, really loud music, drunk people walking around. You should go home. It's like We live in a pretty like family-oriented like neighborhood on the west side. Yeah, but what comes into your thought isn't just like, well, love them, but, you know, got to call those police and just really, we, I've asked them a couple times, and this isn't okay. Like, awesome if you're the kind of person who does that. That's great. Anyone else, like the rest of humanity, at least that I've met, is more like, these people are the spawn of Satan. You don't say quite the spawn of Satan part, but it's like everything in your bone. Like, I'm going to throw a rock over the fence. Yep, I'm going to, oh my gosh, I'm reaching for a rock. (laughs) I didn't actually throw a rock over the fence. Our immediate impulse is then to actually next time I see those neighbors, this has happened before, is the lens that I filter this through is constantly critical. It is not commendable. My instinct is not, especially when I'm ticked off, especially when I'm annoyed, especially when I'm frustrated, my instinct is to always cut, is to critique, is to not think of the commendable thing. And part of that is because what's on my mind constantly, and we talked a little bit about this last week, is what is actually, what am I setting my heart to? Are my conversations filled with negativity and critique around every corner? Am I for people or am I not? I had all these examples. I'll skip them. But you just look through history. Like over and over and over and over you see people who have a sort of outlook that is not commendable. An outlook that is not thinking on the things that are good even in a broken situation or in a broken thing. Uh, just inventors, like uh, Lord Kelvin, radio has no future. Um, he talks about x-rays will prove to be a hoax. Right, this is like the mindset. Sir Richard Vander Hooley. space travel is utter blige. Uh, Harry Warner of like the Warner Brothers Studios is my favorite. 1927 says, who, <laughs> the, the F, wants to hear actors talk? This is before there was audio. <laughs> like, who the hell wants to hear? I love that. <laughs> I still feel like that. Just kidding. Dynasties Lardner says, uh, rail travel at high speeds is not possible because passengers unable to breathe would die of asphyxia. <laughs> uh, Lee, I'm going through these anyway, I so said I wasn't going to. Lee Forrester says, while theoretically and technically television may be feasible, commercially and financially I consider it an impossibility. Right, these are sort of funny examples, but this is what it is to actually look at a situation that has a ton of broken parts, right, that was not feasible and not actually looking for the things that might looking for the actual positive, looking for the commendable thing in the situation. And so th- this gets, at, gets to us, I guess, when we start to like focus in on how we are called to live as followers of Jesus, that um, our posture towards each other, needing to be like the God who is for us, is something that ends up coming out in phrases like you hear like mom say, if you can't say something good about a person, don't say anything at all. And Paul's, Paul's going one click, like, back from that, like Jesus so often does. If you can't think about something, like, good in another person, like, try. Think about the way in which God thinks about them. Do you have a firm understanding of the way in which God is for you? It will shape, then, even the moments that you have to be harsh. Even the moments that you need to be critical. Even the moments that you need to step down and go, look, we need to have a conversation. Even the times where you need to write that review or you need to call the police, whatever it is. right? This is just the ordinary, boring, blood and guts of our life. This isn't some big vision for our church. This is the daily faithful practices of being a disciple that Paul's calling us to. The stuff in your brain should be commendable. It should be looking for the good and the true. And when it's not good... The fact that you are grounded in the reality, well, I know God's for me. I know how God has dealt with me graciously and patiently and beautifully. I'm going to deal with this miserable wretch of a human being graciously and patiently and beautifully. We're going to mess this up. We're going to screw this up. But if we don't intentionally take steps to do this, to focus in on that which is praiseworthy, it just won't happen magically. There's all sorts of behavior that results from obeying this principle and all sorts of behavior that results from disobeying it. And I think our general posture so often is to the negative. That's why we wanted to do this series. It's because I really feel like our default posture as a culture is so oh, not lovely and not commendable and not praiseworthy. I want to wake the, the band up as I close and we come into a time of communion and We're just going to sing one quick song after the sermon and take off. Um, I'll explain why in a second. Um, But as the band comes up, I also want to make an important distinction. There's also a way that we can be um, focused in on our city. Not just on the individual relationships that we have in this world, but we have an opportunity to be for the people around us and for our city. In the way in which Jesus again sees our city. Jesus' posture when he looks out over Jerusalem is one of weeping. Weeping because he loves them and he sees the, the wrong that's happening. My brothers and sisters who get all wrapped up in Facebook debates. Stop. If it's not leading to something beautiful. For those of you who have a general posture towards the world out there that is not one of looking for the good, claiming it, and then creating new culture. And helping point it towards the Lord of the universe who is love. Like as a church, we have an opportunity to come to the communion table. And to be reminded, right? If if anything, we're being reminded of when we come to the tables, this is the God who's for us. I love you so much that I gave myself for you. That I took all your shame and all your brokenness upon me. And that every time we come to this table, we are reminded again that our sins don't count against us. That we have a God who is fully for us. Who has moved us from life to death. And in that moment, I just want to encourage you today as you come to the back or come to the front to take communion, to be filtering this act of redemption through the lens of what is the one person that you need to be for that you are not? This person doesn't have to be an enemy. I realize all the examples I end up using are ones of like the person who bothers you the most. Like who's the person that is just in your life who you actually love to death and they don't know that you need to like begin to actually speak this way towards them? Or what are, I mean, specifically to Paul, what is commendable? What are the things that you continue to put on your brain that are not admirable, that only continue to feed your constant critical spirit, the negative spirit that you actually need to go, you know what? I actually want to be known as a person who lives in light of the God of the universe who's for me, for other people. Because let's be honest, it's exhausting to always be critical. It's exhausting. To constantly be looking down on every... It's, it's exhausting looking for the bad in every situation. I get exhausted by it when I see it in others. I get furious when I see it in myself. So let us not just white-knuckle our way into obedience. Because that doesn't work. Let us actually be transformed by coming to the table and taking the bread the body of Christ and dipping it in the blood of Christ, dipping it in the cup and being reminded of this is love, the God who is for us. Lord Jesus, we come to you with our sin. We come to you in the places that we need um, care and protection. Some of us just need to literally just be reminded that you are for us. Or maybe this is the first time that they ever heard and they need to make some decisions based on that if they want to actually open themselves up to you. And so I pray in this moment, as we come to the table or as people sit in the pew, God, that you would speak in a powerfully and a specific and a personal way today, that today we would see people come to know you, to come to engage and open themselves up to you for the first time. I can't help, Lord, but pray for the person who has been sitting in pews their whole life. The person who, like, well, I guess this is everybody, who's just hot and ready to go. I pray that this moment, these last few minutes together are sacred. That you would just um, convict strongly your spirit would convict strongly the places where um, they need to take hold of this command to think about that which is commendable admirable praiseworthy to hold on to those things that you would make clear the things that need to be weeded out of their thought life that you would place people in their minds right now, Lord, that they just need to love on, that they need to be for, they need to encourage, that they need to like literally grab their phone when I'm done and text. Might we be a church marked by what is lovely, that we are thinking about what is lovely and true, but noble and just and righteous and commendable. In your name we pray, amen.